This is the Fire Dog Podcast. The views and opinions presented on today's episode are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Welcome, my name is Matt Wilson. Thank you for joining us for part four of the Air Force Fire Protection History Series. If you've not done so yet, make sure to listen to parts one, two, and three of this series. Part one covers the inception of the Army Air Corps Fire Service through the 1950s. Part two covers the 60s and 70s, and part three covers the 80s and 90s. Again, this series is led by Sergeant Damian Moore. Using source material given to him and discovered in his pursuit, Sergeant Moore put together a presentation covering the material presented today and in other history episodes. The material can be found on our website, firedog.us, so make sure to check out the site if you're interested in reading the source material and while you're there, check out some of the other available episodes. Part four of the history series will cover the 2000s through present day. Please welcome Senior Master Sergeant Damian Moore. Well, welcome back. We covered a lot of great information, part one, two, and three. You know, as I was just mentioning to you, I've talked to you more than any other guest, and uh, that's not a bad thing, but uh, <laughs> that's to say that we've we've covered a lot of good information. So for those listeners who haven't listened to part one, two, or three, go back and listen to those episodes. A lot of the information we cover, you know, it sets us up well, and it provides a lot of good context for what we're going to talk about today, and which is the 2000s and beyond, correct? That's correct. Yeah, we're going to kind of wrap things up, if you will, with this last segment, uh, hitting uh, 2000s and, uh, you know, getting as far as we could with the, the data that I have. Yep. Cool. Well, I'm excited to get into it. All right. Yeah. So we'll we'll, we'll kick off with uh, doing things a little bit differently. So when I present this uh, again in person, uh, this last one, I kind of... Uh, so in the past, I always start with a did you know and uh, end with a pioneer highlight. But uh, this this time I'm going to start with a pioneer highlight um, in the beginning and I'm going to close with one, too. And then we'll do the did you know kind of halfway through. Uh, so a little bit of a change in format, but uh, I think you'll understand why uh, we do that uh, towards the end. So we'll start with our uh, second to last pioneer highlight. Uh, Today is going to be Chief Robert McAllister, or Senior Master Sergeant, retired also, uh, McAllister. Uh, so Chief uh, McAllister was born in Covington, Virginia, uh, on July 23rd, 1935, and uh, he joined the Air Force, enlisted in 1952. Uh, a lot of funny stories, or a couple of stories about uh, him was, or one of the main stories was that he always kind of gave two different birth dates. Right. Uh, he would give uh, a birth date um, in one month and one particular year. And then in some cases, he'd tell another birth date in another month in a different year. And uh, what they ended up finding out or what ended up coming to light after more than 50 years of, of uh, service is that uh, he actually tricked his recruiter into thinking he was 17 years old because he was that eager to join the military. Uh, wow. So he told the. Uh, told him that he was uh, 17 when in actuality he was 16 uh, and was able to get in. And he held on to that secret uh, until he got through about 50 years of service and a couple of uh, his buddies were able to, to get him to come forward on, uh, on that. So I thought that so was nice. really interesting. Yeah, that is very interesting. And so nobody <laughs> checks birth certificates, I guess, in the 50s, huh? I guess, you know, things were probably a little bit different back then, you know. Maybe not as thorough. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And you hear that story a lot of time. Well, I think more you hear it in, in movies or TV shows like, you know, I lied about my age to get into the service, you know. Yeah. But I guess it was it, it was probably a little common back then. Yeah. Yeah, probably. And, and, you know, thinking about, you know, you think about recruitment even today and how tough it is sometimes, right, to get folks in. It could have been that the recruiter even knew, right? Like maybe right. <laughs> he's like, yeah, yeah hey. you know, I'll I'll play this game. <laughs> right, right. You, you said you're you said you're eighteen, right? No, I'm sixteen. Right. Well, you said you're eighteen. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, but it still spoke to you know the fact that he wanted to serve, right? He he wanted to get in and uh, give back to his country. So, um, and you kind of see that throughout his career, right? He had from 1952 to 1980, um, 
he had assignments all over the world, England, Philippines, Vietnam, Japan, a ton of stateside bases. Um, he, he filled in and operated in just about every position as he came up through the ranks. But uh, where he really kind of shined and really uh, gained his reputation was uh, in Vietnam. Uh, he actually volunteered to do four tours in Vietnam. And uh, during that time, he amassed uh, over 1,155 combat missions, right? So I think we talked in episode one about the, the Husky and the Pedro mission and the rescue mm-hmm. ops going after the downed firefighters or the downed pilots and things like that. Uh, Chief Gallister was a big part of that. And he was one of the primary uh, members of that team. Um, and so when we look at some of the things that he was able to accomplish over that four year tour, he, he was quoted as saying, you know, I loved it. Every nerve was on edge. It was just a time that, you know, I was able to get after the mission essentially, right. Without all of the side distractions and things like that. And, uh, during that time he got, uh, silver star, two bronze stars, 33 air medals, uh, the Vietnamese medal of honor for training Vietnamese firefighters. And I was ultimately credited with saving 17 airmen, um, and recovering the the remains of several of those that were killed in, in action. Well, that's incredible. 1,155 yeah. combat missions, not yeah. 1,000 hours, 1,000 missions, 1,155 missions. Correct. <laughs> that's insane. Yeah. And so that's back when uh, a tour, and it may be different for the Air Force, but a tour may have been a little longer than six months. Yeah, so it, it doesn't specify specifically how long a tour lasts, but I mean, you know, if it was at least six months, you're talking two years downrange, right? Um, right, which is pretty significant uh, for him to do. Um, so, and you know, after doing some research on him and learning about him, it was like, you know, this is a no-brainer for why, you know, our uh, her- heroism award is named after him, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I thought, so, thought I'd recognize the name. Yeah, and that absolutely. that award was. That award was named, I'm sorry, he was named after the Heroism Award pretty recently, right? Uh, let's been, see, been I believe it was, no, it's probably 2000, uh, I have it in here in my notes. So, yep, 2010. Okay, so yeah, pretty short time ago. Yeah, so 2010, that award was uh, named after him. Um, so he did all of that while he was on active duty. Right. And uh, in 1980, he retired as a senior master sergeant and uh, he took about a year off and came right back as and became the fire chief at Columbus uh, Air Force Base. And he remained there uh, for another 20 uh, or so years until he retired in 2002. And then in 2005, he passed away due to cancer. Some other things that uh, were done in his honor in 2009, uh, the fire station there at uh, Columbus uh, was named after him or named in his honor. And he actually uh, resides, his remains resides under a tree there close to the fire station. Uh, So he is uh, forever, right, will be a part of of that station there and that, that, uh, uh, that base and you know, obviously, um, he's been inducted in 2013 into the Military Firefighter Heritage Hall of Fame and received the Lifetime Achievement Award um, as well, like many of the other pioneers that I highlighted. Yeah, what an incredible career and impact, 50-plus years of service, and all of those tours in Vietnam, you know, definitely a shoe-in for the Lifetime Achievement Award. Absolutely. Yeah, so... um, so yeah, that's our uh, pioneer highlight for this, one of the pioneer highlights for this segment. All right, so I'll, I'll move on into uh, getting into the 2000s, right? And so you can't talk about the early 2000s without talking about 9-11, right? And the war effort. Um, and so if you're able to see the slides, you'll see I got pictures of here of guys downrange, uh, photos of uh, uh, guy training, doing some firefighting training. That's actually uh, 
my fire chief, uh, so a nod to him there, uh, there, um, uh, put doing the extinguisher training, Chief Stinson. And then, uh, you know, another photo here of the P-19 coming off a of C-130 uh, downrange there. And then, of course, again, uh, you know, some photos here about uh, with Sergeant Ray Ringel. And so I'll talk about him here in a little bit as well. But uh, we'll start off with talking about, uh, go ahead, Matt, sorry. Oh, I was just going to mention that these photos will be on uh, Instagram. So, well, at least some of them will. So okay. if, if, in case you're interested in seeing them, go to Instagram, Facebook. Sweet. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, we'll, we'll look at, uh, so the early 2000s, right? 9-11 kicked off. Um, uh, I was not yet in yet. Uh, uh, I had yet to raise my, my right hand and, and come in. But, you know, some of the things we were able to see and, and recognize during this time was that uh, firefighters were heavily tasked, right, to, to help with the war effort. Um, so much so that uh, we actually uh, asked and requested um, uh, contract firefighters, right? And one specific example in some of the history books that I was looking at is at Dias uh, Air Force Base. So Dias uh, deployed approximately 80% of their uh, department downrange in support of uh, OEF, OIF. And uh, so that ended up being about 55 military personnel. And that left only 15 people in the station to provide coverage for the B-1 and C-130 missions. And so um, essentially out of options, right? Because everybody was hurting, all the departments were, you know, uh, deploying folks. Uh, they were able to reach out to the city of Abilene and actually pay overtime for about five months to some of the civilian firefighters for them to come on base and assist uh, covering down our mission on the back end. So wow. pretty significant uh, change there. Um, and I believe the first time we ever had contractors uh, working with us uh, there. Yeah. And I'm, uh, that's a good indication of what, you know, when the nation's at war, kind of what things look like, or at least a small part of what things look like, you know, it's, it's an all hands effort, you know, yeah, we're going to send 80% of the fire department because, uh, we're going to war and things are a little different now, you know, we've, we've drawn down a lot and we have kind of an enduring mission in the, in the central command AOR. So it's yeah. a lot different now, but you know, when it's an all hands effort in a, in a war, you know, we're going to sacrifice a whole lot. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we look at, uh, as we go down the slide and look at some of the, the places that we operated, right. We got Bagram, uh, we got Ali, uh, later named Talil, right? Balad, Kirkuk, which I spent some time at myself, one of probably the best deployments still to this day that I've been on. Um, and then uh, there was also a, a footnote in the, in the records about how, and it didn't give specific names, but a group of fire chiefs came together. They were summoned by the Iraqi Ministry of, of um, Interior to come together and basically help build up the fire service for Iraq. And so they came together, they built a seven year strategic plan um, on how to actually fund their fire academy. Um, and they got the academy funded along with 27 fire stations, 600 fire trucks. And then of course, uh, Matt, I don't know if you've been downrange and you helped train some of the, the local uh, or host nation firefighters I think every department uh, downrange did some of that to include myself there, Kirkuk, bringing those civilians on base, um, or even the Iraqi military uh, folks doing that that inter uh, interoperability, trying to build them up and, and give them those skills to be able to uh, uh, execute on their own. Yeah, I never had uh, never had the privilege to do anything like that, but uh, man, what a what an awesome opportunity and. I'd like to, I'm curious to know how it, how it all worked out in the end. I mean, I know that we're still in Iraq to some capacity, but, you know, what kind of impact did we leave there? Yeah, I think, you know, at least there initially or while we were there, uh, the impact was felt. Um, you know, I don't know, I can't speak to the long term, but uh, for sure, I, I know we made a difference while we were there and anyone that uh, was there. And, it, you know, obviously it was interesting too, right? Different 
uh, level of skill, different mindsets. Um, and then you had, you know, I, I, I often share this story with the younger guys that haven't had the opportunity to deploy. And I talk about how, you know, I was in Kirk Cook and we were bringing these, these civilian firefighters on from off base. And, you know, during those times, you know, you didn't know who was who, right? You didn't know who the enemy was, right? There were a lot of different tactics being employed. And so oftentimes it, it always started with like, you know, a serious, like, you know, uh, posture, right? We, we were armed up, we'd had our, you know, our, our guns locked and loaded, right? We're watching. Um, and then we bring these guys in, we start teaching them basic life-saving skills, CPR, some basic firefighting tactics and things like that. And then by the end of the day, you know, we're playing foosball, we're playing volleyball, we're still maintaining the security, right? But you know what I thought was cool is at the end of the day, we still shared the passion of taking care of our communities, being firefighters, right? And wanting to help uh, those that we serve. And so that was kind of a cool commonality at the end of the day, regardless of your, your race or where you came from um, and things like that. And we were fortunate to never have any you know, um, guys in disguise or whatever you want to call it, you know, secret agents or people plotting to do things. So we were re really fortunate during our time there. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's a shared value among firefighters across the world. You know, they're, you're there to protect the citizens, protect the community. And, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. It's a yeah. great point. Absolutely. Yeah. So then I'll, I'll close out, uh, you know, talking about the war efforts for me, in my opinion, um, you can never, you know, talk about, you know, this time period without bringing up Sergeant uh, Ray Rangel. Um, and so 2005, I think, you know, for the most part, we've all heard of or know the story or think we know the story of Sergeant Ray, uh, Ray Rangel. But I kind of want to share from my perspective, you know, some of the stories and things that I heard. You know, I was a young A1C there at Vandenberg Air Force Base and the story broke that, you know, we lost a firefighter downrange. And, you know, initially it was like, oh man, you know, this sucks. You know, obviously, you know, we gotta remember him, we gotta memorialize him. But then there came a narrative that, oh, he was making bad decisions. He should have never been there. He should have never put his people in that situation. And, you know, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, I love us, right, as fire folks, but sometimes we can, Right. We like to be the, the Monday morning, morning quarterbacks. We like to say, oh, if I was there, I would have done this. If I was there, I would have done that. Um, right. You know, uh, you know, but when I think about it, you know, this was a young man who's, you know, raised his right hand and said, you know, here I am to serve. Um, and in fact, there's, you know, uh, his dad tells a story about before he took off to go on this deployment that, hey, dad, like if something happens to me while I'm gone, um, just know that, um, I volunteered for this, like nobody's making me do this. Like I'm, I'm doing what I want to do. And those are the stories that, you know, a lot of people don't know, right. This was a, a human being. This was a guy who laid his life down, right. Who, um, mm -hmm. went in to, to get after and save one of his fellow, uh, firefighters and in the process of it lost his own life. And so, while yes, um, we've done some things to, to be better and do better, um, I think we need to recognize more so that, right, versus the, you know, uh, the other nonsense, I think. Yeah, and it's easy to be critical about something like that or really anything. And yeah, we have a tendency to be critical and you know, it's a human tendency to be critical, right? Like you look for, right. as a, it's a survival instinct to look for what's wrong, you know, so that you don't so that you don't die yourself. But uh, so, and that's why I think we're attracted to what went wrong in a moment like that. But what we're missing, most of us is context around the situation. You know, like you weren't right. inside that man's head in right. that moment, you know, and he, he saw people suffering. He saw that, you know, death was imminent for them. And he did what he thought was right to, you know, to, to save their life. And, uh, yeah. You know, you know, unfortunately he died in the process and, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's easy to be critical, but you know, you weren't there and, uh, right. you don't know what was going on, what kind of pressure he was under. And so, 
Yeah, and I know there are a lot of, you know, narratives that, you know, kind of float out around there, but, you know, I was just, obviously we want to learn, right, from, you know, mistakes that we make, right? And I, I think that's that's a natural tendency, like you mentioned, to, to learn from that. Um, but definitely want to remember, you know, this young man's sacrifice. You know, there's a, a website out there where, you know, after the, you know, the events uh, that took place, um, they kind of put it out there to remember him. And, and year after year, you could see his daughter, you know, as she grew uh, without her dad, and she would come on there and say, hey, dad, this is what's going on in my life this year. And, you know, I miss you. You know, I know I'm very proud of what you did. And um, it just really, man, like just tugged on, you know, for me, tugged on my heart and really gave me a different perspective, right? Because, you know, when you're young, you kind of subscribe to what the older guys are saying, right? And so you kind mm -hmm. of carry, you know, some of that, like, yeah, but this is what I heard. This is, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as I started to, you know, get into this history stuff and start to look into, you know, um, what took place there and, you know, hear some of the stories and, and ultimately look at it, right, you know, now from, you know, being, uh, if I was in his position, like, you know, like, man, what would I have done? You know, right. um, I think it's uh, important that we continue to, to remember, sorry, Ray Ringel. I know there's some, some, um, uh, there's some awards in his honor downrange still that they give mm -hmm. out to like the sharpest member. Um, uh, there at Dias, they actually have a, a area of the base there named after him. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I think we've done a good job. Uh, but I just obviously don't want to forget, you know, uh, again, to be the only firefighter to, um, you know, to die in the, in this effort, in this war effort, uh, I think it's pretty significant as well. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I, do you know the story or do you just know of the story? Like, can you, can you say, can, do you know the actual I, facts? I don't. Um, so, uh, during my time at Silver Flag, we had a, a member come through the class, a guard member who was actually there. Uh, he wasn't on the Rams team. He was still, he was back at the station. Um, and he shared some, some aspects of the story, which, and I think this was for me, and that was back, he came through the class back in, oh man, I think 2017. And for me, that was the first time I ever heard a different narrative, right? And mm -hmm. some of the things he shared, I don't have, you know, again, all of the facts, but some of the things he shared was like, this went down, you know, late at night. Um, you know, if you were on the Rams team uh, back in those days, essentially you were like, it was like being on a hot truck, but for a helicopter mission, right? You would basically jump on a helicopter, fly out to a location uh, with some tools, extrication equipment to kind of, you know, uh, you know, affect a, a hasty rescue, you know, typically for our army brothers and sisters, right. To get them out of a jam. Mm -hmm. So call came in, you know, late at night, you know, early morning, if you will. And, and the, you know, the story is that, you know, the Humvee was already, you know, flipped over down in a, a ravine and had been there uh, for a long time. So the, probability of, um, you know, really a rescue at that point was, was slim. It was really more of a recovery. And uh, the story is, is that, you know, he had on, you know, uh, all of his Kevlar gear, plus maybe some bunker gear. Um, one of his guys was trying to get down there to get to the vehicle slipped. And he went in to actually catch his guy and somehow lost his foot in, in the swift water and, uh, you know, and, and sailed downstream and they, you know, found him later on. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, and, and the guy, he kind of painted some things like, you know, when they got there that like the army guys were like yelling, like, Hey, get down there, get my brother, get my, you know, it was, it wasn't like a calm event. Like you just rolled in, like, right. you know, where he, you know, maybe had time to think and, you know, uh, there was there was a lot of different things going on. Is is the picture that he painted? Yeah, um, yeah. Think so, about all those variables, right? So you show up to exactly. to your you know somebody who had just seen their friend flip over in a Humvee that is uh, dead or likely dying, and and then your your fellow firefighter slips into the water and like in that moment, you know, where people are yeah. yelling like do something. 
Right. You know. Yeah. 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 Unfortunate, so, yeah. fortunate loss, but uh, you know, incredible sacrifice. Absolutely. So, but um, so yeah, definitely. Like I said, always want to remember him. Always want to keep that in mind. And and for me, like I said too, right? Uh, a lot of this history. There's a lot, right? There are other members who have died in the line of fire, but. You know, as I looked through the history, this these were things that I felt like impacted me um, as an airman, you know, especially now, right, that we're getting closer to, you know, the time that we served, right? Uh, so these are some of the things I pulled out. Again, not all inclusive, and I'm not, uh, you know, uh, intentionally omitting anyone else. Um, I just think about this was a, a thing that I can remember and relate to in history during that time. Yeah, and so far, and I've mentioned this too, before we press record, uh, you know, I've had a handful of people reach out and say, hey, why haven't you mentioned this or that? And, um, you know, we're not going to cover every piece of history here. And, and we know that uh, no one piece is more important than the other. And uh, and Absolutely. I encourage you to, you know, yeah, reach out to us with uh, with any kind of history. And we could we could highlight it in some fashion, maybe not in an episode, but in a, in a post or something like that. So, uh, you know, our time is... Uh, it's finite here. We can't, you know, we'd love to sit here for hours and talk about this stuff, <laughs> but we can't do that. And, and we don't know it all either. So you got to let us know. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Definitely and don't and, know and this particular time period, I know that a lot of listeners are going to be able to relate oh, okay. to like, just like, just like you, because in myself, you know, cause we've now we're, we're now living through this particular piece or this time period. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll jump into our next, did you know, um, and it says, uh, did you know this Randolph field fire station built in the 1930s is still standing. So it's a picture of an old fire station there at Randolph air force base or air base now. Um, and, and I found out actually in presenting this class for the first time that this, uh, building actually is still standing, which is pretty cool. And uh, but it's no longer a fire station is being used as like some office space. Um, I believe they told me uh, OSI operates out of there now as well. But I go on to ask, you know, how much did the building cost? So I got a sixty nine thousand B twenty five thousand three hundred forty C five thousand three hundred fourteen dollars or D fourteen thousand nine hundred and four dollars. And the correct answer is D. The building costs fourteen thousand nine hundred and four dollars to make in nineteen thirty. Pretty crazy. Yeah, I would have. I would have probably guessed the higher number. You know, sixty nine thousand. But it's yeah, it's pretty crazy. Fourteen thousand. I mean, you can't, <laughs> you can't buy a car with that now. <laughs> exactly. <You know>? Yeah, <laughs> that's and, like uh, some extrication equipment, right? These days. Maybe. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, there. And looking at this picture, I'm I'm stationed at Langley. Um, I think many know that, but looking at this picture, there's a, uh, there's a fire station there or a building that was formerly a fire station that was built in the thirties as well. They don't look almost similar and it's now not, it's now occupied by, um, the honor guard. They, because it has an open bay in there in the stall yeah. area, they, they yeah. use it for their stuff. But, uh, yeah, interesting. I'm sure there's a lot of other departments similar to this one that still exist on a lot of air force bases. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so I'll, I'll get into uh, carrying on with the 2000. So a big, big thing that happened in 2005 uh, was the uh, program uh, budget decision 720, right? Or PBD, better known as PD, PBD 720. Um, so again, still a young airman at uh, at Vandenberg Air Force Base when this rolled out, and I can remember hearing the stories the horror stories of what was going to happen to fire. Uh, but again, once I got into the history and kind of found out what was going on, it was really cool to kind of look back now and see, you know, like, okay, that's why that happened. Now that makes sense. And, you know, you can kind of separate some of the rumor from fact. Um, and so essentially what came about or what drove uh, PBD 720 was that uh, General Mosley took office in September uh, 2nd, 2005. And it was stated that he essentially inherited an Air Force with old weapon systems, um, underfunded modernization programs. And uh, uh, basically, he, he decided to direct this program to replace our aging weapon systems. And so 
you know, in retrospect, you know, the Air Force was always known, right, for taking care of its people, quality of life, and all of these different things. Um, to my knowledge, this was the first time that the Air Force really ever leveraged people for, for equipment, um, if that makes sense. Um, and so at the time, uh, we were rolling at, uh, uh, we were pretty fat, uh, or at least it appeared that way, right, across the, the service. And so program uh, budget decision 720 said, hey, we need to cut 40,000 active duty positions, 17,000 Air Force Reserve uh, positions, and 2,000 civilian positions. And so that was from uh, Big Air Force, right, um, the chief of staff. Uh, saying that, hey, this is what we need to do. And we're going to take the money from those positions and we're going to leverage that towards, you know, modernizing our aircraft, right? Our weapon systems, our platforms um, and things like that. And, and so what the civil engineer did at the time was said, hey, you know what? Let's look at this and try to use this as a force shaping initiative. All right, so let's make sure we have the right people in the right places. Um, let's cross man, let's, or not cross man, cross flow, right? So if we have too many people in this job, let's move some of them over to this undermanned job. And that kind of was the theme throughout the Air Force. And so the Air Force or the Silver Engineer took from program budget decision 720 and created the PAD 0722 or program action directive 0702 and called it the Silver Engineer Transformation Program. And essentially what they did was take a top-down view of all of civil engineering, right, at the time and said, you know, hey, how can we, uh, you know, get after uh, this objective to get in line with uh, program decision, uh, program budget decision 720. And so the Air Force uh, civil engineer said, we need to get rid of 1,586 active duty positions, 1,400, um, I'm sorry, uh, 1,586 total active duty positions, but of that, 1,408 were enlisted, 178 were officers, and we needed to reduce the civilian personnel by uh, 271. And so um, this caused them to look into fire, right? Uh, and I kind of uh, share this story. I think going back to ALS, right? Uh, if you remember the days, Matt, when you, when you went to ALS, your first briefing was about your job. You remember that? Mm -hmm. that yes, sir. Yeah, I do. So, um, you know, people like to poke fun of us, uh, at us, you know, about being in recliners, right, and relaxing and things like that. So I kind of opened my briefing with that. and But then what I came around and said was like, but really, when you look at the fire department within the Air Force, we are essentially the the Air Force's insurance policy, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if there's a fire on base, if there's, you know, a significant event, they're not going to call GEICO. They're not going to call USAA, file a claim, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, we're there to, one, hopefully prevent it from ever happening. And if it does happen, we're there to mitigate, right, or lessen the effects um, of the event. Uh, but the problem with insurance is, Nobody likes to pay for it until they need it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's kind of how I look at this, you know, this pad uh, that took place because uh, after looking through the history of this thing and how it rolled out, um, fire actually really took the brunt of it. So I mentioned just a few minutes ago or seconds ago that uh, 1,586 positions um, you know, uh, were targeted for the enlisted personnel, or I should say 1,408 mm -hmm. were targeted towards uh, enlisted personnel and 271 towards civilians. So when all was said and done, fire lost 901 positions. Yeah, that's insane. So, so you Talk do about the 1,600 math. total, yeah. Right. So that was a significant, you know, this, we took a big hit, right? Mm -hmm. Um uh, to this. And, you know, they, they use the data, right. right and yep. I remember again, as a young guy hearing the stories, right. About, Oh, they said only one incident happens at a time, right. One right. major incident. 
right? And we still operate, you know, or a posture to man that way today. Uh, but they they crunched the numbers, right? And they said basically, based on the numbers, uh, an aircraft incident happens every 611 days. A structural happens every 108 days and a medical happens every 2.7 days. So based mm -hmm. on these numbers, right? And not only that, when these things do happen, they happen during the day, for the most part, not really at night. So they mm -hmm. basically started looking at ways to cut risk or, or to take risk, I should say. Mm -hmm. And they use the, the numbers as justification and I remember, you know, being a young guy and them saying, well, you know, one of the issues was that historically we didn't do a good job of uh, capturing, you know, our incidents, right? And so while it looks like every, it only happened every 611 days, there were a lot of people that were saying it happened more frequently than that. Yeah. Um, and the same with structural fires, right? Um, and so, but if you looked at the data, you crunched the yeah. numbers. That was what yeah. we had. And so that's yeah, all hearsay. Yeah. So, yeah. Whatever the data says, you know, that's what they're going to go off of. Absolutely. And so yeah. what this, what this required was us to come up with a, a way, uh, to, you know, um, a new concept of operations, right. Or con op to, uh, to do our jobs. And the idea was that we would leverage or that we would basically beef up fire prevention, um, uh, focus on early intervention. Uh, this is when crossmanning came out uh, for fire. Uh, I don't remember having to even crossman before this initiative rolled out. Um, I remember we had a set amount of folks on the engine, right? Set amount of folks on crash, and that was it. There was no having to have two sets of gear, right? You remember those mm -hmm. days? You had yeah. your crash mm -hmm. gear set over there, right? And yep. then your structural yep. gear. Um, yeah, we got yeah. stretched really thin. Um, yeah, I, do, I do. And this is, this is about, this is the beginning of my career around the beginning of my career. And so I, I didn't yep. know any different. Right. So I didn't have any, um, understanding of how things were before necessarily, but, uh, you know, I did witness some of the, the redux. And so I do remember being a bit fatter in Manning and then, you know, slowly kind of diminishing over time. And you'll even talk to, guys that have been around a little bit longer, you know, talk to any of your civilians that uh, have been, been around for a little bit. And, uh, you know, at Langley, uh, specifically, man, we were, we had almost double of what we have now on yeah. shift each day, you know, and, and, and even yeah. the station is designed to accommodate right. the station. The sta station is designed to accommodate, you know, twice as many people. And so we got twice as many bunk rooms and yep. it's a big station. Yep. And so people come by and I know I'm kind of getting a little off topic, but I feel like, no, it's no, it's relevant. Good, yeah. Good talk. People come by during Christmas and, or Thanksgiving or Easter or whatever to drop off cookies or food or whatever. And, you know, they look at this building and, and, and all these fire trucks and they're like, you know, there's gotta be at least 20, firefighters in there and yeah. I, actually there, there's about eight of us in here you know <laughs> um but anyways no that's uh that's spot on because uh and and you bring up a key point which was a lot of the loss right wasn't initially felt it was like hey this person's going to pcs and nobody's coming in to fill them this person's going to retire and nobody's going to going to do uh come in and mm -hmm. uh i remember my fire chief at the time chief uh mark farius He's still there at Vandenberg. Shout out to you, Chief, uh, if you're listening. But uh, he immediately started to push back, right? And some departments were able to do that. And I believe, I can't remember the exact number, but he was able to salvage some of those positions. So, mm -hmm. um, but he was able to justify that, right? Um, yeah. Obviously, and the struggles Vandenberg. of a fire chief, man. Yeah. The struggles of a fire chief, you really have to be on it, it. It seems to me anyways, that you really have to be on top of things uh, because things like this can happen. And if you don't speak up, if you don't have your ducks in a row, correct, you're going to lose yeah. a lot. And, yeah. And, and, and don't just bring me stories, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, we, we have to have that data to back it up. And I think at the time Vandenberg, you know, with all the wildland firefighters, uh, fires that we have there and, you know, I remember being on rescue there and we would run out the gate all the time. We were first engine also to back up Lompoc City 
I think we had some some automatic aid stuff with Santa Maria, I think, at the time, too. So, um, so yeah, he was able to justify that. And the, the impact was a little bit less there, but we still felt it. Uh, we had a couple of civilians retire that we didn't hire for the positions. And yeah. like you said, I was at Fire Station 1 initially when this first rolled out. And Fire Station 1 was a huge station. You know, it was probably one of our bigger ones there. And, uh, you know, slowly but surely, you know, so, you know, and two, right, and the reason I remember this is as a young guy, you typically didn't get your own room, right? You had to, like, move around and find one that was open. But over mm-hmm. time, it was like, oh, this is actually my room now because there's nobody else, you know, to right. even fill it. I get, so, I get two rooms now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's it's, it's crazy. I, I, as you're speaking, you know, I'm thinking about how we were talking about uh, hot trucks or ramp patrols yeah. and yeah. Uh, the rescue concept, right? And yeah. and here's here's another example of kind of reduction in operation or you know kind of a shift toward doing less. Yeah, um, it's uh, you know through time, man, we've definitely shaped, definitely um, reduced a whole lot. Yeah, for sure. And so uh, one of the other things was, you know, with this concept of operations was that we were going to leverage technology, right? And the biggest piece of that was the introduction of ultra high pressure, i.e. introduction of the RIV, right? Um, and I remember uh, uh, I, my deputy chief at the time was uh, Senior Master Sergeant uh, Phillips. Um, Tony was his first name. I don't know if that was short for Anthony, but he went off to what I assume was like, you know, how we go to Fry every year now. Um, and I remember him coming back. He pulled everybody in. It's like, hey, we're about to do things differently. We're going to be losing people. Uh, we're going to get these new trucks that are going to replace the P-19. And it was just like, hold up. You're telling me this little truck is going to replace the P-19? And it was mm-hmm. like the start of it immediately got no traction, right? Like the rib was mm-hmm. like dead before it could even mm-hmm. uh, show up, you know? Yeah. Before it could, it was dead on arrival. Right. So, yeah. um, <laughs> and I think a lot of it had to do with the messaging at the time. Right. Um, it was, so, so our senior leaders will tell you now. Right. Uh, and I've heard them say this is that, you know, it was a messaging issue and saying, mm-hmm. and saying that it would replace the P-19. The idea was never for it to replace the P-19, but to mm-hmm. just be another tool, right, right. To, to add into your toolbox. But, yeah. and that's key, right, to know, especially, you know, if we're going to, you know, push something yes. out, you got to make sure, you know, uh, that we're using the right terminology and words, if you will. Right. And is that is that true? I, I remember when it showed up at Tyndall, I was at Tyndall, well, did it show well, up last there? I can't were, remember. You were the, that was one of the first locations, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. T- Tyndall being right across the street from Afkick, you know, it was always yeah. the um, it was always kind of the guinea pig for a lot of things. So the first striker, I think, showed up there, and I could be wrong about that. And I don't think I was there when the Riv first showed up, but I think I left, you know, and then it showed up. It was very close, so I was still in contact with people that were there. But it did take over for a P nineteen there, from what I remember. Yeah, okay. I think okay. there might have been a couple uh, like that, a one for one yeah and and again i could be wrong about that and and if you look at pictures of of tyndall fire department you know it's parked right there is is kind of like you know this thing's rolling out and along with the other gotcha. crash trucks you know and and we're gonna man this instead of you know p19 and the p19 went away so and that's a fighter base and i think that uh you know a rib is a good tool yeah. for that and it, and it is Florida and you don't have to worry about the cold and all these different things, but maybe, yeah, maybe the messaging wasn't, wasn't done really well, but I think that some still think, yeah, it was a replacement for the P-19. And yeah. And I think I, you know, maybe it was, and maybe they're saying, you know, they should have changed the messaging, right. Or, or, uh, Hey, yeah. we tried, right. And it didn't work um, mm-hmm. kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, it's uh it was dead on arrival, at least at Vandenberg, you know, and then again, you know, being a young guy, being very impressionable, um, 
you know, from, you know, the people that you respect, you know, the guys that have been in the business for a long time, they were like, ultra high pressure doesn't work and blah, 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 right. blah. So, and the, and the, you know, uh, the struggle continues, you know, you still yeah. hear the conversations <laughs> today. So I'm deployed now and I, I feel like I've talked about it at least three or four times since we've been here. Wow. And there's, you know, the rumblings are still that, you know, <laughs> this stuff uh, may not work as well as the others. Like, well, it's a tool. It's a tool for a specific right. purpose. You know, it's actually right. the purpose of it is in the name of the vehicle, rapid intervention vehicle. It's, you know, it's supposed, to, it's supposed to intervene right away. And then the, uh, the large yep. crash trucks get in there and take care of business. Exactly. And during my time at Silver Flag, that's, that's how we employed it in the way that it was intended to be used. And I think we won some folks over, not that we were trying to, but, you know, our deal was there was just to push truth, right? Or just say, hey, this is how you use the rib or this is the purpose, right? Um, right. Kind of thing. So, so yeah. But, um, you know, all of these things were going down, right? In my, your, early in your career, right? Early in my career. And, uh, you know, uh, although the Air Force, you know, cut us, um, you know, uh, by 901 positions, uh, you know, we still, the job continued, right? Um, some of the history talks about, you know, uh, the following year between October and March of 2007, firefighters went on to save 41 lives on Air Force installations, extinguished uh, six uh, fires in military housing, and, uh, you know, Vandenberg had uh, sent the hot shots out to one of the largest, um, I think it ended up at the time being like the fifth largest wildland fire um, in the state of California in their history. So we were still busy. The job still kept going. We just now, like you said, had to do a lot more uh, with less during that time frame. Mm -hmm. And to this day, we're still trying to recapture those positions because I believe that number is... It's about 900 and something that we're trying to get back. Um, if I'm not mistaken, don't quote me on that. Yeah. I mean, I, and I don't know either, but uh, I can tell you that, that, uh, that where I'm stationed now, I don't want to say that we struggle, but uh, we could use some civilians specifically. We could use a little bit, we could use a little bit more experience and we could use a little bit more manpower, I think, but, uh, yeah. but point to the statistics and, you know, the frequency of fires with aircrafts or structures or whatever, you know, yeah. I guess statistically, when you look at the data, it, it makes sense. Um, but yeah. I think that there's more to it. There is. And then here's the other piece you got to kind of consider is that it's not like the air force stopped building, right. Stop expanding stop adding, you know, uh, aircraft to its inventory. Right. Um, mm -hmm. so new requirements are showing up at, at bases. Right. And so mm -hmm. we, we were still having to, you know, um, try and operate with the numbers that were given to us. And I think as a career field, we've done a great job, um, you know, uh, with our manpower standard, trying to stay on top of that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and it's, you know, it made me proud to hear, you know, obviously it's not a good look for the rest of CE and they are working on it. But, you know, a lot of our other crafts out there actually haven't had updates to their uh, manpower standard in like 10, 10 plus years, hmm. you know, and to know that, you know, we've done a great job of that, you know, our senior leaders, our civilian, you know, leaders have done a great job of trying to stay on top of that, you know, it just makes me proud and, you know, happy to be a part of this, um, this community for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're definitely on top of things. There's no doubt about that. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about uh, some other developments and things like that. So there was a CAF system that kind of rolled out, um, compressed air, uh, firefighting uh, system. Yeah, compressed air, firefighting foam yeah. system. Yes, thank you. Um, you know, this was uh, something that was kind of uh, tested to be a bridge in between, essentially like, you know, a job too big for a Halon extinguisher, but uh, too small for really a fire truck to kind of roll on, right? So the idea was that this thing would sit on the back of a pickup truck um, and you can kind of roll it out for almost like, you know, rapid intervention, like if you will. Um, I don't know essentially what happened to it, but, you know, when we talk about history repeating itself, 
you know, I think when I first uh, presented this class, you know, we talk about, you know, the ACE capabilities and things like that. This might be something to go back to, you know, go back in the drawer, pull it out, pull out the plans, take a look at it. How can we tweak it? Is there something that can, that may fit, you know, maybe it was just ahead of its time or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, I think Europe does business this way with compressed air firefighting foam or okay. uh, the technology similar to what the RIV has. You know, it's a compressed air, high pressure, ultra high pressure uh, firefighting technology. And the compressed air calf system is similar in that, you know, it, it breaks up water into smaller uh, particles, which can okay. absorb heat better. Um, and and it does exist. I can, I can speak from experience. It, there are... Trucks are ordered with calf system engines, actual engines, not like a pickup wow. truck with a calf in the back. Yeah, there's engines out there in the Air Force inventory. I know for sure nice. that have compressed air firefighting foam systems. Now you can you have your traditional pump, and then you have the option to use this compressed air firefighting foam system, and nice. it's great for wildland, um, and it could be great for room and contents fire. You know, it, you'd have to train on application, okay. but the idea is that you use less water. And, you know, the, the smaller particulates absorb heat better and all that kind of stuff. Of course, you know, the application, uh, you know, it, it varies. You don't want to use it for everything, but anyways. Of course. Yeah. No, thanks for that. Um, so in addition to that, 2008, uh, PACAF's rescue course was stood up. Um, so uh, I think this is more so probably when it was certified because I, as I presented this before, I had some folks say, well, I was at, you know, I went to, to a PACAF rescue course, you know, prior to 2008, you know, um, and it was like, and what we did some digging and talking with uh, Chief Morris, uh, 2008 was when it became an actual, you know, where you get your certification, you know, NFPA certification out of the course. Um, and that was an effort, they did that in an effort to save money, um, uh, right? Uh, so, mm -hmm. Uh, and manpower, right, as well. So I think at the time it costed about fifteen thousand dollars per per firefighter to send them to Goodfellow to to, to conduct training. Mm -hmm. uh, but if they were able to do it right there in your AOR, um, you know, they kind of cut significantly cut those that cost. And then actually, as they still do today, actually I just saw an email for a call to go out for um, for hosting the PACAF rescue course, you know, they'll come mm. to your base, right? Which is even cheaper um, mm -hmm. where you're just paying for two or three guys to come teach, you know, your entire um, department, if you will, or those that you, you deem uh, qualified and ready to uh, take on this cert. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's pretty cool to see that. And then 2010, we talked about Chief McAllister, the heroism award uh, was renamed um, after him. Um, and then in 2011, I'm going to spend a lot of time on it, but the RIV actually rolled out at that point. Um, mm -hmm. I think there were, it was out before that maybe a little bit, but not in an official capacity. I think this was mm -hmm. more of the, the, uh, stamp of approval. Here they come. Uh, mm -hmm. kind of yeah. I remember uh, as an airman going to the air force research laboratory, right next to the silver flag site nice. or right next to that the uh, building right next to that burn pit there at the silver flag yep. site on Tyndall. And yep. I remember, I remember seeing a P19 retrofitted with a, uh, ultra high pressure system, gotcha. uh, back, back around this time, you know, that's, it was a pretty cool time period to be stationed at Tyndall, you know, yeah, when they were sure. developing the, just this technology. Yeah. So, um, you know, I hate to close on a rib note, right. But, uh, <laughs> But uh, but a lot of the history, you know, and the research, uh, things that are, you know, solidly documented um, kind of uh, ended or closed out in the, around the 2012 period. Right. Um, and I know there's a lot more that's taking place in between now and then. Um, and the cool part is, is that, um, you know, history is still being written. Right. Um, but I want to close with, uh, you know, some of my thoughts, you know, some closing thoughts um, and a quote here from. Uh, uh, Mrs. Mrs. Rice, Condoleezza Rice, uh, kind of said this here, and I, I think it's it's really valuable um, and applicable to when we look at this history um, as a whole, and and we talk about uh, you know having an impact. So uh, she said, "People who end up 
as first uh, don't actually set out to be first. They set out to do something that they love. And so typically at this point in the class, you know, I, 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 I you know, appeal to the audience, right? And I just tell them, hey, you know, we look at uh, Chief Frank Joseph, right? And we look at uh, Chief Warner, right? Chief Warner Officer Warner and all of these people that have made a significant impact. You know, they weren't necessarily out to be like, oh, I'm going to be the first one to do this. Like they had a genuine passion for, um, for our community, right? For the fire and emergency services, for making us better. And so, you know, my challenge is uh, to everyone, right? That if you're listening now in this fire service, look for a way, you know, find something that you're passionate about in our, in our career field and go get after it, right? And what will end up happening is you may become the first person to develop it. And, and, but that wasn't necessarily your intent, right? And it was more so because, you know, this is what I was passionate about and this is something I wanted to do. And so the last slide here is the pioneer highlight. And I wish you all could see this, but uh, essentially it's a pioneer highlight, just like I've presented everyone else, but there's a silhouette of a firefighter um, here and there's question marks above the name, right? So there's no name, it's a silhouette and it's got the date from 2012 and on, right? Um, and I basically say, it's your turn, right? It's your turn to write history. It's your turn to make an impact on this career field. It's your turn to set out to do something you love that will impact us all and make this career field uh, better for our communities, for the Air Force, right, and for, for our nation. And so I kind of close with that challenge and uh, end the series that way. Yeah, that's a great way to end it. Um... You know, I don't think, I think that some people may not realize the opportunity they have to make a difference. You know, we think that sometimes our our job or our position is insignificant and I can't make, but you'd be surprised. Um, and, and like you said, follow what you're passionate about. Um, yeah. You have to, you know, follow, follow a purpose, have a purpose and follow it, you know, and because the result of that is going to be, well beyond what you could have ever imagined, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. And, there, and there's, you know, there's some great things going on. And I think that if we, uh, maybe if we have an opportunity to cover the next couple of decades, uh, one of these days or somebody after me and after you, um, yeah. I think there's going to have a lot to talk about. I mean, we're, I just spoke with senior mass and Jeffrey Wyatt, the force development manager at AFCEC and, they're talking about developing a seven level course. Yeah. Yep. Um, and excited, you know, excited a, what they're doing too. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, yeah, it's fine. Um, and then, you know, just the different changes and, and just making things better with, uh, you know, whatever apparatus, manpower stations. Um, I personally think that virtual reality is going mm. to play a huge part in, in the way that we train firefighters. Wow. Yeah. Um, that's just my personal opinion. And I know that the technology is kind of underdeveloped and, or maybe it's too expensive. Um, and it's not, you know, logistically feasible to be able to allow everybody in the enterprise to, to train on it. But I think that's probably the future of our training. And so the next couple of decades could cover something like that. Um, yeah. yeah, but I mean, yeah, about too, the, like you said, the, uh, the raising of our ASVAB score, right. What's the impact, mm -hmm. you know, how's that going to impact mm -hmm. us? You know? Um, yeah. It's, I know it's been a little quiet, but, you know, DHA taking over the medical services and putting yeah, that's the, another big hospital one. care, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. So there's... We could have, yeah. That yeah. could be our primary purpose, you know. Exactly, yep. Yeah, so, so there's, there's a there's, lot of changes. It'll, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, once I hang hang this uniform up and I can dedicate some more time, I'll, I'll dig out, you know, from 2012 and you know, the current date, uh, that would be pretty cool, um, to continue to do as well. So, yeah. yeah. Well, sir, it has been an absolute pleasure. I really do appreciate you taking the time to cover, I mean, what we've covered from the 1930s, forties to, uh, today yeah. and uh, yeah. a lot of great information and I appreciate your time. Hey Matt, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. Bye.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Firedog Podcast. You can find more episodes just like this regularly posted on our website, firedog.us. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the Firedog Podcast and on Instagram at the Firedog Podcast. That is the Fire D-A-W-G Podcast. Please subscribe, like, and follow to stay plugged in every new episode and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts if you've enjoyed this episode. Lastly, don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and coworkers, either on social media or in the firehouse. This is Matt Wilson with guest Senior Master Sergeant Damian Moore. Until next time, stay safe.